Hey everyone, Eric here. I'm excited to announce our newest show on investing at Turpentine, Sorcery by Molly O'Shea. Sorcery brings the conversations investors and founders have behind closed doors to light. Past episodes have featured Alex Kolodzic of AVC, Xander Oltman of Commodity Capital, and David Weisberg of 10X Capital, whom you might know from another Turpentine show. This is the show for investors by investors. We dive deep into topics like the significance of LPGP dynamics, portfolio construction, if SaaS is really dead, AI theses and predictions, and more. Check it out by searching Sorcery on any podcast platform today. Well, hold on. Are, are moving 2 million people out versus killing 2 million people are very different things, right? Not desirable in either place. I don't think Israel wants to have to move. The reality is, is the world is a tough place. And what is the better solution to get rid of Hamas? If the Mexican cartels who ravage Mexico, if they came across the border, well, there's kind of an irony here in that they kill 100,000 Americans a year with fentanyl, but that's a silent death. But if there was a, is there a terrorist attack across the border in Texas and a bunch of different places, and there were 1,300 dead Americans. Yeah. And, and if they were dedicated to the elimination of Americans and the, you know, the, the taking back American land. Right. What, what would happen? We would do whatever it took. I think the average American lives in this kind of post-Cold War, nothing actually affects us. Everything can just kind of be Twitter fingers. And the reality is there are places in the world where Twitter fingers turn to trigger fingers <laughs> to, uh, you know, drink. I, I still think it's a, you know, it's a cheeky line, but it, it, it really it's like, no, no, there are places in the world where like history has not ended. What's crazy about Israel, because it's so tied into tech, is we know people who are getting called up into the military. Imagine just like in the U.S. being called up as a reserve because we now need to go invade Mexico and remove the narco cartels, right? Like it just it, it, it's unfathomable. Where in the world are you? I'm in uh, I'm in Puerto Rico at our buddy Jonathan's house, the same place where we found out a year ago that SBF had committed <laughs> massive fraud and that I was immediately asking, oh, what's his next move? And you said, there is no next move. He's going to jail. <laughs> like as soon as the CZ thing happened or whatever, the first you know thing that happened, you, you knew it was happening. Yeah, I don't know. I've been around uh, some crypto grifters before and they always end up in jail. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Your your internet okay? Like, uh, you know, I guess you're in in a developing part of the world, <laughs> right? Yeah. But people would definitely want to turn it into the 51st state as long as it would reliably vote Democrat. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Stereotypically, the, I was having Wi-Fi. Actually, it is it is really sad at how much devastation that still exists from Maria. Like all, all things considered, like the really brutal hurricane. Um, and I was actually talking to someone from Puerto Rico. Uh, recently, and, and he said the island really has never recovered. And frankly, the the tax policy that I think a lot of people we know uh, take advantage of, I don't think it's had necessarily the the economic impact that maybe the island was hoping for. Although I, I wouldn't really give the local politicians much credit in Puerto Rico. It seems like they're they're somewhat corrupt. So I think I think it's a bidirectional problem here. But um, it is interesting that the U.S. basically has, like, if, if you think about Puerto Rico, it is effectively a state that doesn't have the same rights as a state, although there are some people in Puerto Rico who actually want it to be an independent country. But if you live in Puerto Rico, you can move to New York. 
Um, so it, it's like a pretty, pretty nice deal for if, if you're someone who wants to leave Puerto Rico and, and get into the U.S., like talking about immigration like we did were before. But I think in terms of just like the infrastructure and, and kind of this weird stepchild of the Spanish-American War, right? Like if you think of all the, the colonies of the U.S. Or, or kind of like territory the U.S. was in charge of or kind of a heavy influence over Cuba, Philippines, after the Spanish-American War, we, we kept Puerto Rico. Um, and that's kind of never been a resolved issue. Yeah. And maybe it's a segue to uh, Israel. Would we say that Puerto Rico is an apartheid situation of the U.S.? <laughs> I'm just joking. I mean, the, no, no, no. I mean, but that's the, the crazy thing is that there are crazies on the Internet who have come out this week, despite what should be kind of a relatively easy thing to condemn in the sense that it's so horrific and so inhumane that even if you're a supporter of Palestinian independence or Palestinian right to kind of self-determination, I think a normal person can look at the situation and say, Hamas is evil. And I condemn like 100% all, all acts of, of brutality against innocent civilians. And instead, I think what we got was a, I mean, a very clear example of people start with, I have a mood affiliation towards something. Israel is bad. So therefore, I'm going to backfill my take on the situation, not from the first principles of, was this a terrible atrocity committed against innocent people? And, and not even just people like old people, babies, uh, you know, you have live hostages, terrible, terrible stuff, right? It makes me sick to my stomach thinking about it, especially the stuff with the babies, because now I'm a parent. And just to think of, I saw a video of people's kids are, are being used in, in social media posts by Hamas and, and to see the baby crying, it just, it, I, like my stomach, I, I couldn't like eat, eat after that. It's just so sickening to think that this kind of stuff is happening barbaric, right? Like not, not civilization. This is barbarism. And you have these progressive crazies in the United States doing mental gymnastic contortions. Oh, well, it wasn't 40 babies beheaded. It was only a few babies. Like, it's just like, come on, like you've completely lost the plot. And I, and I want to almost step back because I feel like we're, we're diving into the thing that, that really is boiling my blood at, as it relates to domestic U.S. politics. And if only our other co-host would show up, he would immediately say, ah, another foreign instance where everything runs through the American uh, lens of, uh, you know, domestic politics and political neuroses. But but the BLM uh, social media post from Chicago where they were showing the paragliding terrorist with a Palestinian flag is it, just it's so infuriating. That it is, it's showing showing true colors. And, and, and you're going to immediately have apologists be like, oh, well, that's just like this one. The post stayed up for a day. And they trembled down. only after a day of, of, of maybe getting enough, then they, then they removed it and they kind of put this cheeky like apology that was kind of a non-apology. But they did a third one. What? They did a third, they did a third one that was like, we've been Palestinian supporters from the beginning. You, you should have just like, you know, you should have listened to us when we said it. Like we support Palestine. Right. But so so supporting Palestine is different than exactly like wholeheartedly condemning the atrocity that was committed against innocent civilians by Hamas. And and this is where it's like and, and I and I got some pushback. It was interesting, like 
I, I kind of put a few tweets out on Twitter. Look, I'm not Jewish. I'm, I'm you know, very pro-Israel. I have a lot of Israeli kind of like friends and, and Jewish friends. Um, I, I don't have as many Palestinian friends. Like uh, I only know a, a couple of people. So let me let me kind of like preface it there. But I thought it was completely appropriate after what is the equivalent of an Israeli 9-11, right? Like this this devastating attack on innocent civilians, right? To show some support for Israel, right? Like I just, I, I, I never did a Ukraine flag, but I did an Israeli flag. So, you know, that, that maybe speaks some, something about me. But what was interesting is the, the thing that I started pointing out is this both sidesism coverage. And it's funny, I, I actually had a similar tweet to what Alad Gill's uh, tweet about the front page of the New York Times on Sunday. And, and we talked a lot about this of just, you know, I, I went to the New York Times and I was like, okay, well, at least the New York Times is going to have to cover this as like this terrible terrorist attack and atrocity. And the front page had a total count of dead people across Israel, which, by the way, was way undercounted at that point because we were in the kind of fog of war on the numbers. You know, I think at this point, it's 1,300 Israeli civilians, uh, or it might be even more now if you count the military and then obviously the hostages. But there was like 900 dead in, in kind of like the Middle East, basically. And then the photo on the, on the front page, the first thing that would load was a, a building of rubble in Gaza. Not the the 260 people killed at a concert for peace, the 40 dead babies or the burn baby, like none, none of that. Right. So it, it just like and, and I want to be clear. I understand that a journalist is not responsible for the front page. Like, you know, the person reporting doesn't get to decide what the front page is, doesn't get to decide the headlines and how things are laid out. But I think whoever is in charge, the editorial staff, the senior staff, that that's just it, completely not appropriate the day after this terrible atrocity is happening because it, it's trying to equate a, a kind of set of military actions that, that happened by Israel the next day against Hamas, which we, we can get into the details. When Israel bombs a building, they knock on the building before. So they drop a, a like a munition that basically indicates that the building is now going to be bombed. And then they give a period of time for people to clear out, um, which what ends up happening is you have the terrorists get out immediately. And then if there are anybody left, uh, that, that would obviously be a, a, a tragedy in its own right. But, but it's, the, the, there is no version of the Israelis showing up and killing 260 people at a, at a peace loving concert, right? They, when, when Israel is doing a strike, they're doing a strike against a terrorist and, and they're trying to minimize collateral damage. But, but anyways, going back to this New York times thing, Alad's post, I think, got a lot more play. I think he was a little bit more explicit. I, I was kind of saying both sidesism because I was almost like a little afraid to kind of like dip too much in, given that I am not Israeli or Jewish. And Alad just kind of went for it and, and it went totally viral. I think like basically everyone commented on it. But what was really interesting is you had a lot of what I would consider more moderate, centrist type Silicon Valley uh, VC types like Mark Pincus responded, like basically a bunch of Jewish people said, I'm canceling my New York Times subscription as a result of this. And what was interesting is I got some pushback. Some people sent me DMs like, what do you mean by this? Like the both sidesism. And I just kind of didn't engage because I was like, OK, this is I, I have nothing to win here. I'm not going to delete the tweet because I, I want to stand by it. But I'm just like, I'm not going to get into fights over an issue that, frankly, I don't have any skin in the game on. And but was kind of very telling is the reaction and then what happened on Monday or Tuesday, and I think you tweeted this, is the Times coverage started to shift in terms of what was on the front page. So the front page, I think on either Monday, and, and I'm, I'm talking about the online, I don't actually even know what print was, 
But the online Monday or Tuesday was dead Israelis, very graphic images like this. This obviously was a terrorist attack. And so my heart breaks for for anyone affected by this uh, in Israel. If, if you you know lost someone directly, obviously, it's just unimaginable. But but anyone you might know or obviously all the people who are uh, pulled up as reservists. And, and yes, I also feel bad for the two million people in Gaza who are caught in a crossfire with the, this genocidal terrorist organization that is in charge. But like, th- there's an appropriate way to to kind of indicate that. And I think we've seen a, a range of statements. You know, there was a lot of criticism, for example, Barack Obama was a little late to getting a statement out. But when his statement came out, like I was expecting something worse. And instead he, he was able to actually say, in I think a very straightforward way, Hamas terrorist organization attack with with giving the appropriate amount of space, I think, for what's happened in Israel, while also indicating that there are going to be a bunch of innocent civilians in, in Gaza who who die as a result of, of this war. Right. And 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 so I think that there were appropriate ways to do that in a way that you can indicate that there are still some pro. Hey, I, I, I think we should be trying to uh, kind of work to a pe- peaceful solution with the Palestinians. But I think that there's a whole other group, and this is the the progressive wing, which you're quickly realizing like Barack Obama is not a progressive, right? Like he is he is of the old guard, maybe a little bit more progressive than a Biden. Although at this point, Biden, you know, kind of the inmates are running the asylum, given that I don't think Biden is is really driving. Although Biden's speech, probably the best, I haven't watched that many speeches of his presidency because most of the time he, he barely can talk. But it was a good speech, um, and and it was unequivocal in its support for Israel because Israel is a U.S. ally. And I mean, we're, we're putting skin in the game. We're putting multiple carrier groups and, and things like that. So we, we, maybe we should just talk about it because I think we've, we spent some time in the chat groups talking about like, what's at the root of it? And, and is this the current thing? Or like, what is actually the current thing here, right? Like Ukraine was a very clear current thing. It's just like, you're a good cathedral. You support Ukraine. Put the Ukraine flag in your, in your bio. But right now, what is actually the current thing? Like, how, like, how do I actually... If I if I want to just be like a good PMC or <laughs> want to keep my job at you know BCG or McKinsey, like what am I supposed to do? And and so maybe we should uh, give a guide for those people, given that we've probably spent too much time analyzing this. Well, this one's the the first tough current thing in the sense that it's unclear what to do, or that there's a great schism in the current thing. If you think of the current things over the last five years, it's been Me Too, BLM, Ukraine, maybe stop Asian hate a little bit. COVID. COVID. And usually it was pretty clear what to do. The progressives and the liberals were were aligned, uh, more or less. And so it was clear that you stood with Ukraine. It was clear that you stood with BLM, clear that you believed women. And if you didn't do those things, you might get fired. <laughs> and this is the first current thing where there's a schism. There's an intro civil war among the left. There are more progressive side who are more sympathetic with the Palestinian cause. And yet there's a lot of people who stand with Israel. Um, and so um, you see this playing out in Harvard, you see this playing out in New York Times. And it just so happens that Israel, I think, was the key wedge issue all along that was going to divide the left because it it breaks the, the brains, it, it breaks the script, right? Usually the script is oppressed group uh, gets oppressed by an oppressor who in, you know commits some sort of violence, and it's clear who's the bad guy and who's the good guy, right? Ukraine, Russia. Russia invades Ukraine, 
you know, we need to stand with Ukraine to fight the oppressor, more powerful Russia. Yeah, there were some Putin sympathizers, but they were fringe on the right and they were kind of, you know, cast aside put, and, and basically everyone supported. You know, some people said, hey, we shouldn't send troops to Ukraine. But even they, they admitted that Russia was the aggressor and the bad guy. Israel-Palestine is a very complicated situation. It's, it, it's not the same situation where, where a you know, more powerful country oppresses a, a less powerful country or, or group of people and the, the less powerful is, is the more moral. That, that's not necessarily, that's not the case here. Well, I mean, Israel is the more powerful country. So that, that is actually the frame in which... Israel is more powerful, but they're also more moral. Oh, I, I, I think if you were to talk to the, the progressive left, they would not say that. They'd say this is an apartheid state and, you know, this is no different than South Africa, you know. But, but the moderate person would not say that. The, the moderate person would agree with Sam Harris when he says the moral equivalence. Like if Palestinian, Palestine and Israel were reversed, their power, Palestine would not be as charitable or merciful towards the, the Israeli second class citizens. Their charter of their leadership is dedicated to eradicating to you know Israel, eradicate, eliminating Jews, right? Um, and so you even talked about earlier. There's just a very difference, uh, a big difference in how Israel treats civilians with how Palestinian uh, you know leadership tr- treats civilians. So on this issue, some people want to align with the group that is in a worse position, and some look at the facts and say, or look at the situation and say, hey, the situation is different. Uh, and actually, I think Israel is the more you know, sort of, you know, moral actor here, I, they may want a two-state solution or whatever, but they say, hey, this, this might be intolerable. But then the third thing, also just worth noting, uh, not to echo our friend Kanye West, who's, who's not our friend, but there, there are a lot of Jews in, in, in tech, in, in New York Times, in, in edu- academia, in, in media. And, and, you know, I had this tweet, it was a little glib, but I said, people were willing to be targeted as, as men. They were willing to be targeted as white but they're not willing to be targeted as Jews. Like people aren't proud of their whiteness. They're not proud of their, their masculinity necessarily, but they are proud to be Jews. People are, they want Israel to exist. They, 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 they want Israel to be safe. And also it's worth noting that the situation here is where Israelis are literally scared of their lives, you know, uh, for BLM and all the other causes, there weren't, people weren't, you know, white people or the you know, or men weren't scared for their lives. They're maybe scared of getting falsely accused or something, but th- this situation has radicalized uh, a lot of people who said, "Hey, I supported BLM, but BLM doesn't support me if if they're Jewish or on the Jewish cause." And so, this this is causing a big schism. Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's just exposing the fraud of the progressive part of the party. Is they start with the, the thing that they think is, and then they work back to do gymnastics to support basically Hamas or, or kind of minimize Hamas's, you know, freedom fighters or whatever BS. And, and you can say, oh, that's only the radical side, but the progressives are run by the radical people, right? You know, Rashida Tlaib in, in Congress where, with the Palestinian flag, yet, yet when asked about the atrocities, she's unwilling to condemn Hamas. She, she's shuffling away and having someone deal with it. So it's just, it, it just absolutely start with the, the kind of like position and then work your way back and then stick your head in the sand if, if you get caught in it, what is obviously a, should be a pretty straightforward thing to say. If, like, even if you support the Palestinians, you should start with, on the day after the equivalent of Israeli 9-11, Hamas is evil. Hamas is a terrorist organization. This was an atrocity. State the facts, just like, just get that out. And then you can go try to have a discussion a few days later or a week later as, as this war starts to rage and, and you see all these terrible images, right? Use your freedom of speech and, and, and have some nuance. But 
the immediate rush to justify a terrorist act or or minimize a terrorist act because it's now going to hurt your preconceived or original political opinion is crazy. And then obviously, like the just the inconsistencies in the logic. Believe women. Me too. Okay, Israelis, women saying that they're raped. Oh, well, do we have proof? And it's like you have these these journalists who are kind of like, you know, uh, gumshoe reporting. And it's like, uh, okay, so when it when it's the right person saying that they were raped, you know, if someone's saying Donald Trump sexually assaulted me or whatever, we got to believe them right away, right? Because Trump is bad, so therefore believe women. But when it when it's the Israeli women, woman going through this terrible atrocity, we 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 rush to qualify or hmm, maybe we should dig in a little bit deeper. So that's completely fraudulent to say believe women and then actually not not follow through on it, right? And and I think like, you know, oh, so the oppressed versus the the oppressor. Is there a group of people in history who have been more oppressed than Jewish people? Right? Like, but, but like we should just we should just say that, right? I'm not Jewish. So I I can kind of say it. you don't you don't have to be the one trying to claim it. Do we think that the Holocaust exists? I, I believe that the Holocaust exists. I think it's it's on, on par with one of the most, if not the most terrible tragedy in, in human existence in the sense of the concentratedness against a single group of people, right? Yeah, Mao and Stalin killed probably more numbers, but I don't think the, the evilness of, of the, the Holocaust is, is rivaled, at least in, in kind of anything in the modern era at that scale, right? And so do, do Jewish people get a little bit of like, yeah, maybe, maybe they've been oppressed, right? And there are plenty of other instances, right? Like Antonio would, would be quick to point out in, in Spain or, or uh, you know, during the Inquisition or Rome or, you know, the, the, you know, the English kicked all the Jews out, the French kicked all the Jews out. Like you, you have all these different instances throughout history where, where Jews have been uh, terribly oppressed. And, and so now that because Israel exists and Israel exists within the context of a effectively it's secular, but it, it is a right wing in that it uses military force to protect its people and and is an ally of the the American establishment and, and particularly the American military establishment. You have radical professors who are communists who basically create the Palestinian cause as the, you know, kind of thing that then gets imported into the progressive side of the party. And you have someone like AOC, who I think has been tried to be a little bit more wily and careful, you know, versus Ilan Omar or Rashida Tlaib, like, but, but realizing that, like, okay, from a progressive standpoint, I need to make sure that I am denouncing the DSA, the Democratic Socialist America protest pro- Support basically it was a support of Hamas. Uh, like there are videos of people basically justifying the attack of on. And this was in New York, so she's trying to kind of make sure that um, she's both sidesing it there compared to someone like Richie Torres, who's who's her. I think the next district over, right? And he is a congressman from New York, and he's been unapologetically uh, supportive of Israel. And, you know, condemning Hamas and the, the Democratic Socialists of America and all this other kind of stuff. You have just a lot of people who are just throwing around opinions and they, they can't even tell you like, you know, Sykes-Picot, Balfour Declaration, 48, 67, 73, like basic facts. Like, could you could you actually play it out of like who who attacked whom, 
Um, and why, why, why does Israel have the West Bank and Gaza today in the Golan Heights? Like, wh why, why are those borders exist? What, how, how far back are we going to justify who should have the land, right? Because prior to the Brits taking over after World War One, it was run by the Ottoman Empire for, you know, since the 1500s. And they weren't particularly nice to the people there. It wasn't, it wasn't like a thriving area. And, you know, even in like 18, 1830, uh, Muhammad Ali of Egypt invaded Palestine and, and ended up killing a bunch of people there. So it's Arab on Arab violence. So I, I think like you have very few people who actually have any context here, right? Like they haven't done any reading beyond kind of like a surface level or letting the New York Times beam down an opinion. So I, I just find it like the takes are just really bad most of the time. Um, and then and then when people do have a little bit more nuance on the history, I, I think that they tend to be a little bit more like, OK, it's a messy situation. And, and it's it's an area of the world that has been conquered and traded between great powers. Since, you know, the earliest time, right, like the Assyrians, the Persians, like the, the Greeks, the Romans, the you know, Byzantines, the Arabs, the Ottomans, like it's it just like a the Crusades, like it, it is just an area that has always been fought over, obviously because of the the kind of like component to the kind of three main uh, Abrahamic religions, but also just it's it's an area that that has always been kind of rife with violence. Um, and and so I don't know, I, I think people kind of like they just have selective like, oh, I'm going to only pull the history that like makes my point. But I, I actually don't want to have like any baseline for like, why, why is this region something that people fight over all the time? Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Hey, everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. Yeah, a, a few comments. So first is uh, on the Jew oppression. Um, Jews and Asians particularly also break the, the leftist frame, which is these are groups of people who've been oppressed and yet flourished. And so the existence of them, what do they call it? The model minority myth or something? They're inconvenient minorities in the sense that if you look at them and their success, then you have to look at other groups and say, hey, why aren't you like Asians? Why aren't you like Jews, right? And so they try to minimize that or or, or say that, that that's a different situation, et cetera. And, and you even have this with, we talked about like uh, immigrant black people who come to this country, right? Like Nigerians or, you know, whatever it is, come here and flourish or, or, or of other ethnic groups too. And so they, they try to sort of uh, ignore these narratives because they're very inconvenient to the whole edifice of, of, uh, of, of what's happening. But let's just focus on, on why have Jewish people been so successful? Like an extraordinary level of success given the amount, percentage of the population and the the unthinkable uh, atrocity of the Holocaust, which which you know killed six million out of, I don't even know how many were at the time, 10 million, 12 million. So like, you know, massive percentage of the population. Uh, yet they are resilient and continue to thrive. 
I don't know. Like, I, I, I think like that's just a question people should ask themselves. And, and I think you get a lot of people who would then say, oh, well, they're white. Well, if you look at anything in the historical record, I can promise you that that prior to the frame of, of race in America, <laughs> no one was giving Jews any amount of credit in terms of like, oh, well, you're white, you're fine. They, they, they lived in ghettos and, 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 and it was a very other in Europe. Right. Like the reason you had so many in Eastern Europe was because it was actually relatively tolerant compared to Western Europe. And so you had a lot of of uh, Jews migrate into countries like Poland or, or Ukraine or, or or places like that as a result of repressive Western European regimes. Right. In England, in France, in Spain against Jews. And, and so I just would push people to say, why has this group of people been so extraordinarily successful across everything that they do? I think it's it's culture. Like it it is a culture of uh, emphasis on the identity of, of being Jewish, but also like I think hard work, education. Nothing is going to be given to you in this world. If anything, it's actually going to be harder for you. Deal with it. I mean, this is where Antonio would be nice to have, and and obviously you're you're half Jewish, so I would be curious from from your perspective. But I I have so much admiration for that culture in the sense that it is a the world is a tough place culture, and I'm gonna go get mine because no one no one is gonna give it to me, and actually there are gonna be people who are gonna try to take it away from me because of who I am, and what an what an incredible mindset culturally of just saying got to get through it. Life is, life is tough. These are the cards I'm dealt with. That's, that's how everyone should, should approach life because like, life is tough. There is no one trying to give you anything. One thing, just on one note, side note on Antonio, it looks like he may be going to Israel because the man can't resist a good war. <laughs> uh, he just texted us. It was like, should we do MOZ from Israel? I'm like, dude, we're recording right now. <laughs> um, so we may have him for next episode. And if so, it's Israel episode. I think he's like going to definitely get his like Jewish credentials now. Right. Like he's like, you know, returning to to Israel. I, I'm, I'm going to be curious what his what his take is. I mean, obviously, he went to Ukraine. The, the guy can't resist a good war. He's no, no bug man. He, he's ready to go. The so on, on what makes Jews so successful? I mean, I think you cover education, culture. Maybe there's some natural selection, you know, for, from the just like being a constant pressure cooker. The idea that you're, you know, you know that life. Um, could end or that your people are at risk, it sort of forces you to be on the top. You don't get lazy. You don't get complacent. You don't stop having kids, right? Israel has the highest fertility rate. So just that, like, it's it's natural, you know, it's sort of evolutionary. You're, you're in these tough conditions and you have to survive. You have to flourish. Um, Jews as a group are highly insular. You know, they, they help themselves. They, they focus on themselves. So they're, you know, and often because they've had to, so they, they build each other up. And then there's probably an IQ component just on the, on the group level on, on average that, that's just higher. Careful, Eric, you're going to get canceled. I, my favorite Wikipedia, well, not my favorite, but uh, it's, you know, it's a definitely top 25 Wikipedia article I, I've sent is uh, Jewish Nobel laureates. Just just look it up. Kind of interesting, right? Very small percentage of the population, yet uh, an extraordinary group of humans uh, that have pushed civilization forward, it, it, especially at a time when a lot of a lot of those breakthroughs are happening when, when you know, Jews weren't considered white. How about that? So I, I just, yeah, I, I think extraordinary group of humans. So that that's where I start from. And so it's like, the, what's the opposite? Yeah, philo-Semitism. Yeah, yeah. But what's interesting about that term, by the way, anti-Semitic. So obviously Semitic is is like the people in that region are all Semitic, right? Like, it, I don't think it means Jewish. It's actually like it's a, a linguistic term, if anything, right? So it's like Arabic and Hebrew 
and um, Aramaic, I, I, I think are all within that branch. Like it, it's a distinct from Indo-European. How about that? I actually don't know if Arabic and Hebrew are the same, but I, I, I would imagine that it is. And so that's actually what I think is also, you know, interesting about this is that there's just a lot of shared history, right? Like obviously Judaism, Christianity, and, and um, Islam are all kind of off of one kind of, you know, Abraham, one, one founding myth. And obviously it's deviated quite a bit. That whole region prior to Christianity, and, and Antonio actually the one to point this out, there was no such thing as Judaism. Jews were a people, right, that had a religion. But in a world of a universal, uh, universalizing, and I'm going to try my best to do Antonio, in the universalizing theme of Christianity, where you can be Christian despite what people you're from, right? Like, think about like how how much Christianity spreads. It starts as like kind of this like cult within a bunch of Jews, moves to to Greece and then to Rome, and then and then you have like pagan, uh, you know, Germanic tribes. Charlemagne is, is getting himself you know crowned. But but those those people have nothing genetically like for the most part to do with with the people who or originated Christianity. So you have this religion that that basically goes and conquers the world, and then you actually have a second Islam that that does the same thing, right? It's like yes, you have a lot of Arabs, but uh, as as we can see with Iran, like totally different group of people with with Persians, and then you have uh, all of the the Muslims that end up in in kind of like the you know in Indus River Valley area, like Pakistan. Uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, so, and then obviously in Africa. So, so you have two universalizing religions that come out of uh, the same area, but both are kind of descendant of Judaism, and and so I, I find that it's just fascinating. It's just it's actually, in some ways, the the reason the the conflict is so intense is because there's actually enough overlap, at least from the, the kind of deep historical ties. I actually want to do something even dicier, which is not not just explain why Jews are so successful. But also explain or help, you know, hypothesize on why they're disliked almost everywhere they go, or, or why there's all this anti-Semitism uh, in across populations, across time periods. And I'm certainly not going to be doing any victim blaming. I, I myself am, am, am Jewish and, and pro, pro Israel, but a friend, Jewish friend, asked me that, like, why, why are we so disliked? And I, I, I thought about it because I think it's actually a good question. If we're real intellectual, it's, it's like worth thinking about. And it's, I think it's like the flip side of every strength is a weakness. And I don't, I don't mean weakness in, in this case, but like objective envy, right? A, a group that's more successful than other groups that sticks to themselves, um, you know, helps each other out because they've, they've had to over time. That group is going to arouse the envy of other groups. But I also think there's, there's another thing that is worth noting, which is Jews love to argue. Uh, Jews love to start movements. Jews love to they're change agents, Right. They, they are a source of new ideas. And, and that same thing leads to all these amazing innovations. It also leads to like all these different activist movements, right? Like the best capitalist supporters are Jewish. The best communism supporters are Jewish. The, the people who are like most pro-Israel are Jewish. The people even most pro-Palestinian are often Jewish. Like the, the people who are best at arguing for any, for libertarianism, like whatever, every, every movement are often Jewish. Jews just, you know, they say two Jews, seven political parties. And even before this, you know, we talked about it with Liel and, and Alana, like Jews, so Israel has somewhat had a kind of an intra civil war, right? Like they love to argue. And so you have a group that comes into other populations and is more successful, is more insular, and also kind of starts shit for, you know, activity perhaps sometimes arouses not only the envy, but maybe the frustration of, of groups that kind of just want things to stay the way they were. 
I think when you have a distinct culture of of being an other, right? Like all of the the kind of like hardcore, like you don't eat this type of food, no tattoos, you're wearing wearing the hat, the the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. You you have a whole bunch of stuff that is kind of distinguishing you. Um, and it's not easy to join that tribe. You you can, uh, Antonio being an example of it, but like you, you, it is an other. And what's interesting is I think if you look at the historical record, most populations of people, especially in the world of of Christianity and Islam, they kind of just give up on their their pre-universalizing of religion, uh, at least in the West, right? Like I don't think as much in in like East Asia, but but Southeast Asia for sure. You just have these dominant religious beliefs that kind of get attached to the the empires that that spread them, and then that is like definitely put into the culture. But Jews didn't do that, right? Like, so you know, you you you're willing to you know Spanish Inquisition you, you move to different places as a result of uh, being expelled in in kind of these these you know Catholic or Christian countries in, in Europe. And so I think the willingness to stick to the like what the identity is. Is powerful, but obviously then makes you a target for for kind of the the power in a given area saying, hey, no, 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 I want uniformity. Like everyone will convert to Christianity because this is useful for me in terms of being able to control people. And then I also think like you just have some historical quirks. So one thing, you know, in a lot of medieval situations, you you had a a very hard time doing a lot of like early types of finance, especially lending. And so you naturally had uh, non-Christian populations who, you know, a lot of them were Jewish, would pick up some of these these different kind of uh, trades. And and obviously you have examples of uh, the Rothschilds and then, uh, what is it, Jake, J- Jacob, Jacob Fuger or whatever. There's a whole history there. Um, but I But I think like the kind of success in the, the professions that they kind of ended up doing plus the otherness made them, I think, more of a target. And if I'm a enter- enterprising politician who's looking to blame the troubles of a country on someone, easy to just point to the group that's doing well and in as other, and actually then use that as a way to kind of to kind of sell the population on, hey, if we just solve this, then your your life is going to get better, which obviously is is a lie. Again, this goes back to the the history point is I think just most people don't aren't, aren't very rooted in in any amount of history. So they their lens of history is kind of like a little bit of like what they learned in in eighth grade American history, a little bit of world history. You know, we have a, obviously this meme about the Roman Empire, but like, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? Like, okay, like let's actually break down the people who are claiming to think about the Roman Empire. And it's like, what what is your level of knowledge of the Roman Empire on a scale of one to ten? And and you know, it's not to say you have to be a 10, but like, I, I think most people, when they, when they say they are interested in history, they're at a very surface level. Um, and they just, history is a lot, is, is pretty boring if you actually want to go deeper. And um, it, it, I, I'm only saying this, all the, all the reason is because who wants to read about the like 18th uh, Jewish expulsion or pogrom or it, it just, you know, it's like, who cares about what medieval, Poland cared about Jews. Like most people don't don't actually want to go read that book. Like that that's not as interesting as World War II or uh, you know a biography on Leonardo da Vinci. Like it's a little bit more pop. Like you're never going to see the the like history of the Jewish people in the airport 
people don't even want to read the last 50 years of kind of Palestinian-Israel negotiations and all the opportunities that that there was opportunity for peace, but sort of Palestinian leadership, you know, took it off the table because they were too um, sort of, you know, extremist about needing, you know, they weren't willing to compromise or be seen as compromising to, to, to their people so much to the point where now peace is impossible uh, or, or sort of the two-state solution as it was possible a couple of decades ago. It was, it was possible with these accord, there was these various agreements, you know, for two-state opportunity for two-state solution. But one, my professor once said that Palestinian leadership has never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And of course, Israel's made, made mistakes as well, but um, there's really no moral equivalence. Did you, did you just both sides of them? <laughs> I, uh, all lives matter. I mean, I, I, in, in some sense, I actually, you know, some people are saying, you know, don't all lives matter. But I think all lives matter was actually always the, the right framing. <laughs> I like, I think, and in the sense of like, yeah, you condemn the violence, but also I, I think the, the steel man of what sort of people are, are st- thinking that, you know, and I, I'm obviously pro-Israel, but I think people are thinking, hey, 9-11 resulted in a massive counterattack disproportional to, you know, we went to Afghanistan, we went to Iraq, we had um, sort of, you know, Patriot Act, like all this stuff. And if you're calling this Israeli 9-11, like what's Israel about to do in response and this, you know, the steel man is that they don't want to give Israel the moral credibility in order to do that. And we should we should actually talk about the response. But I, I think so. I think that's where 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 it comes from when people are both sidesing. And I don't I don't agree with that because I guess I do give Israel the the right to do kind of you know what it plans to do. But I get that. I understand. I understand where where they're coming from. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth as unemotionally as possible just like outlining what probably happened and. You know, this is obviously amateur people on the sidelines. The kind of narrative that you're starting to see is Israel will end Hamas as a as a thing, right? So the the kind of like weaselly thing that people try to do is, oh, Hamas is a political party and and was democratically elected. Okay. Like um maybe maybe there there's truth there in the sense that like yes, technically, but like I, I, I bet you if you could get the real honest opinions of uh people in Gaza. Like, do they want to be run by a group that is willing to shoot off a bunch of rockets and kill innocent civilians to then only have innocent civilians in Gaza get, you know, Palestinians get killed? I, I think that the average person probably would be like, oh, that doesn't seem seem like a good trade off. Maybe. And, and, and in that case, then you're, you're if you support the the method by which Hamas is going, arguably, then you're you're. Uh, as morally bankrupt as they are like that. Like, I don't think anyone can make an argument that an unprovoked attack on civilians on Shabbat, like at, in their homes, no military targets. Right. Right. So it'd be one thing if, if they had just gone and attacked the border bases and, and military bases still like, you know, you could, you can pick your side, but the idea is that, okay, if, if combatants are fighting other military combatants, that that is that is within a framework that you can actually say, okay, well, this is this is the side on both sides, and you can pick which one you want to believe in. But there is no version where you kill two hundred and sixty people or a hundred people at a kibbutz or children or like no no version of that. And then and then the person to quickly then say, oh well, well the Israelis are killing Palestinians. The Israelis are killing Palestinians as collateral damage in in trying to remove people who, to your point, have a, a mandate to eradicate Israel off the face of the earth. So 
if there was a political party in the United States that the whole goal was to eradicate a group of people in their mandate, I don't think people would be pretty okay with that, right? Like, I, and I, so I, I think because it's far away, we're able to just kind of uh, dilute the the intensity of of this this mandate, and and it's like not even stated actions, revealed actions now, right? And so I, I think Israel will will eliminate Hamas, like. It, it, one, one book that's really interesting, um, obviously, is going to be very infuriating if you're pro-Palestinian. But if you kind of want to read, uh, it's from the Israeli perspective and a lot of uh, sources from former Mossad people, a book called Rise and Kill First. And so it's about the extrajudicial killing. That's that's what they call it. Assassinations uh, that Israel has done since since, you know, 1948. And it just goes through the entire history. Obviously, um, Munich. Like there was a, a whole set of those, in, including one really um, tragic death of someone who was uh, not related to the killings in, in famously in what I think Lillehammer in Norway. It goes through the whole program, right? So you you, you start with actually uh, Egypt, because people forget that Egypt was a an actual power under Nasser and had a nuclear weapons program. And, and the Israelis first realized that that was an existential threat in an era when you know Egypt was involved, I think in in forty eight, sixty seven, and seventy three, and if and if you don't even know like when I'm referring to those years, what those wars are and what the outcomes were and and kind of why, like you should probably push yourself to do a little bit more understanding because this isn't hasn't been just like Israel picking on you know the, the little kid at the schoolyard. It is it, for the most of Israel's history, Israel was not as strong as it is relative to these other Arab countries. It's only in the kind of last you know, 30 years where Israel, thanks to, frankly, it's it's technology industry, right? Like Israel is responsible for drones. Like the U.S. didn't even have drones before Israel kind of really developed them for military purposes. And and so now Israel is the, the you know, the big strong guy that might not even need U.S. support if it re- really needed to. And but but back in in the, you know, post post World War Two, Nasser, uh, you know, kind of leading Egypt had a, a weapons program and he was hiring uh, Germans like German Nazi scientists to try to build a bomb. And so Israel, that's where they first developed like, you know, letter bombs and a whole bunch of things where they started killing um, Egyptian scientists. Then it gets into the section of, of the PLO, which again, if you don't know what the PLO is, um, not not the Palestinian Authority, not Hamas, it's, it's, you know, Yasser Arafat's organization and the kind of things that the PLO was doing, you should probably get educated on that. And, and obviously the Israelis took the terrorist attacks uh, from the PLO and obviously Munich, the, the Olympics attack, extremely seriously and effectively eliminated that organization, including in, in this book, they insinuate that they they did kill Yasser Arafat. So you, the book is book is very um, detailed in terms of what it goes through. And then the more recent thing outside of, outside of Hamas and Hezbollah, um, Israel, obviously the existential issue for Israel is Iran, right? So you have a, a big country, it's 90 million people, uh, historically very powerful country in in the grand arc of history that is a theocracy that wants a nuclear bomb so that they can drop it on Tel Aviv and, and wipe out uh, a huge percentage of, of Israelis in, in one shot. And so Israel has an existential problem with Iran, and you've had this flip-flopping of administrations uh, in the U.S. To, to run everything through a domestic uh, lens. So obviously Bush... Uh, said Iran is in the axis of evil along with uh, Iraq and North Korea. 
And what's interesting is we went after Iraq. We don't need to necessarily get into that. And you can get as cynical as you want in terms of like what the, the actual rationale was. But there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And, and what it turns out is Iran is actually the one that, that's been making you know, a lot of progress. And so there's been a lot of effort to thwart you know, Iran's nuclear program. They claim it's to be civilian, but you know, they have a bunch of centrifuges. Uh, and if you don't understand how uh, uh, uranium enrichment works, that's also something you probably should Google on YouTube because there's, uh, you, know, you, you enrich uranium to about, I think, 20% for civilian use. When you get it up to 90%, you can use it in a bomb or maybe a little higher. And you need to spin it around in centrifuges. So there's a famous, uh, you know, again, all this is out of kind of ripped out of like James Bond, but uh, Stux, Stuxnet, um, which is insinuated to be an American developed virus that the Israelis were the ones to bring the flash drive into the, the, the facility, which ended up, you know, destroying you know, a ton of, of Iranian centrifuges for, for their uranium enrichment program. But what's interesting is that you have Bush, axis of evil. Obama comes in. Obama basically wants to take the sanctions off of Iran. And he has this guy working in his administration called, his name's Robert Malley. And we, we talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago with uh, Jacob Siegel. But turns out Robert Malley uh, or people working for him are... Iranian agents. And, and there was a story just before this uh, in, in D.C. of like D.C. has been infiltrated by kind of like Iranian agents. And, and so Trump flipped the, the switch and said, no, no, no nuclear deal, Iran. I don't believe you. And if you mess with anything going on in Iraq, I'm going to have a hard line. The Iranians didn't believe him. They sent their kind of like most senior general Soleimani to Iraq to kind of be messing around with, uh, you know, Shia Sunni stuff there. And then Trump uh, had a drone, you know, blow up his car and, and the Iranians didn't end up doing anything back. So kind of put them in their place. And then Biden comes in and Robert Malley is again in the administration and is now trying to give the Iranians money and, and lower the sanctions on them, which every time we do that, they go and take that money. And, and you have all these people doing gymnastics to pretend that, oh, well, it's only for humanitarian things. Six billion dollars they don't have to spend on their population. They're going to go spend on proxy wars in, in, in Lebanon, in, in, you know, uh, Gaza, in Yemen, like, so I, I don't know. Well, there's a few big questions we could tie together. One is, does Israel move 2 million Gazans to somewhere else? Like, is, is that what's going to happen? Who's going to take them? The, the reveal preference here, we support Gaza, but don't bring, don't bring these, these Palestinians to my country, right? Like they don't want them in Egypt. They don't want them in Jordan. Should should those people have to go to those countries? No. But at the same time, like whatever set of circumstances, you are now having a an enclave in Israel run by a genocidal uh, terrorist organization that now has perpetrated an attack that's killed over a thousand Israelis. Israel is going to just remove that. Like it is there is this is the time to do it. And they're they're going to get rid of it. The question is, what do they have to do to get rid of it? Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a tragic, devastating thing. And I think what one thing that's interesting is I, I've been following, you know, a couple of more of these accounts just to kind of I think Israel is doing a um, very good job on social media. Direct. So they're going direct. They have this guy who is a reservist. He, um, you know, some colonel and he's doing a daily update on what happens and he's explaining what they're doing and, you know, talking through. It's like, hey, we're we're warning uh, everyone where we're going to go do our military attack on like Hamas did in terms of their surprise attack. This is what we're planning to do. We're sending leaflets. We're, 
and and obviously Hamas has you know they're they're blocking the roads and and telling people stay in your houses because they want to use people for human shields. But I mean Israel and, and they're putting out like TikToks of just like the terrible atrocities that are happening because they realize that they need to actually win the propaganda game because there's so much progressive media out there that is kind of trying to just basically say Israel's an apartheid. And so the question there is, okay, what does Israel need to do to guarantee its security? Some people say that moving <laughs> 2 million people out um, is ethnic cleansing. And it, it's, and, and it is to some degree, right? Uh, and that- Well, hold on. Are, are moving 2 million people out versus killing right, right. 2 million people it, it, it's are very, very different, different yeah. things, right? Not desirable in either place. I don't think Israel wants to have to move. The reality is, is that it is, is the world is a tough place. And what is the better solution to get rid of Hamas? Like you cannot have, if the Mexican cartels who, who ravage Mexico, if they came across the border and well, there's kind of an irony here in that they kill a hundred thousand Americans a year with fentanyl, but that's a silent death. But if there was a, is there a terrorist attack across the border in Texas and a bunch of different places and there were 1300 dead Americans? Yeah. And, and if they were dedicated to the elimination of Americans and the, you know, the, taking back our American land. Right. What, what would happen? What would happen? We would do whatever it took. So, so, so like, just, just run it through a basic framework. We would do whatever it took. I, I think Israel is saying, Hey, if we don't sort of relocate these people are, you know, we either need to ethnically cleanse or be ethnically cleansed. Obviously they would never put it in, in, in those positions because th that term even includes Right, but I, I think what they're going to do is, I mean, like, again, I, this is amateur thought is they're just going to go block by block. They're going to clear out everything. They're going to get rid of every tunnel. And then they are not going to allow military age males, for the most part, to come back in without there's going to be an occupation and they're going to they clear it? out everything. And they're going to be a lot of. Well, I mean, it effectively is annexed. It, it's like, you know, the, the country, they got all of their supplies from Israel. Like Israel is able to cut off water and energy and all this other kind of stuff, which AOC was quick to point out, right? It is going to be a tragic human situation. It is for, for everyone involved, right? They're going to be, they're going to be dead Israeli hostages. They're going to be dead Israeli soldiers. They're going to be dead Palestinians. It's going to be dead Hamas. Like there's going to be a lot of dead people. And, it, and, it, and that is objectively and subjectively extremely Right. So 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 I, I think like but going back to something that we've talked about, it's like I think the average American lives in this kind of post-Cold War, nothing actually affects us, everything can just kind of be, you know, Twitter fingers. And the reality is there are places in the world where Twitter fingers turn to trigger fingers <laughs> to uh, you know, Drake. I I still think it's a you know, it's a cheeky line, but it, it, it really it's like, no, no, there are places in the world where like history has not ended. And, and what's crazy, what's crazy about Israel, because it's so tied into tech, is we know people who are getting called up into the military. Imagine just like in the U.S. being called up as a reserve because we now need to go invade Mexico and remove the narco cartels. Right. Like it just is it, unfathomable. But but that that's the reality that an Israeli person who could be working on, I don't know, some AI app in NSF. And it's like they got to get on a flight back to Israel because their their, you know, country is at war. Like that is a that is a very different version of the world than the PMC -er on the coast who's like worried about where they're, you know, skiing 
over Martin Luther King Day weekend. And so if you had to guess where the refugees end up, to the extent that there are refugees, I think they're going to, I think they'll just be in Gaza. I think, I think obviously there will be some people who leave, but I, I, I don't think that they are going to clear out Gaza permanently. I think that they are going to eradicate Hamas and then have it be under a significant amount of occupation or new set of rules. I, 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 hard, hard to imagine what it will be, but there will be no infrastructure left for Hamas when Israel is done with, with Gaza. And I don't think Israel cares. You, th- you think they can eradicate Hamas, but leave a million Gazans or a million Palestinians? I think it's going to be very difficult to be a military age male or plus or minus, you know, a couple of years to uh, in in Gaza. Uh, I think that will be I, I, I don't even want to speculate in the sense that I think it is going to be a terrible, terrible human tragedy. But Israel has every right to to remove a genocidal terrorist organization that has has inflicted. It's worth to kill it. Yeah. yeah. So so that is going to be. And, and look, I mean, the West Bank is. Um, run by the Palestinian Authority. There are issues in the West Bank, and, and but at the same time, it is not nearly the same degree as Hamas. Our good friend, Noah Smith, you know, he's got some great takes. He's got some takes we disagree with. I have a podcast with him, Econ 102, that is, is, is great. Um, he says, this is a take I disagree with him on, he says we should double the GDP of Gazans, and that would make them fat and happy, or, you know, in the same way that every country gets, that gets rich. How do you double the GDP? You know, invest in in Gaza growth, et cetera. I mean, this, did did he bring this up? Israel had been allowing what twenty thousand, thirty thousand Gazans a day to go to Israel into Israel. Sounds like a lot like NAFTA in the sense of like, yes, not as not as you know, still a pretty hostile relationship prior to this this atrocity. But a Gazan, you know, Palestinian from Gaza going into Israel and earning a wage in Israel at, at whatever job they're digging, and then being able to bring that hard currency back to this extremely poor area. That that was on a path to that, and Hamas decided that that wasn't that wasn't good enough. Um, they decided that the action that they wanted to take is to lash out. Which obviously, if you think about it from a like kind of like the classic frame of a terrorist, is they want to provoke an overreaction. But I think in this case, they may have crossed too far, right? So it, it's, it's like a terrible like to to be able to try to justify. But but if you change the order of magnitude. Maybe you don't get the same response, but I think once you cross the the what happened and and how it happened, and and in an age of social media, I think I think they they miscalculated on the resolve that is now going to happen from Israel, and I could be wrong, right? Like it, we we could get two weeks into this, and the Borg of of the you know globalist international politics sees these terrible images coming out of Gaza, and they, they're like too much, but at the same time, I actually. I, like what? What are they going to do? Like what are they going to? They going to sanction Israel because the the reality is, the only country that matters in terms of dictating a little bit more of how Israel's thinking about stuff is the U.S. And we just moved the car- battle group, you know, carrier battle group to the Middle East. And Biden's an establishment Democrat, and and I don't know how he got it past those progressives. So something's still in that brain um, in terms of like he's not completely gone, but like that is a. We, we now have a president who is who's committed and wherever way it goes in 24, unless Biden somehow doesn't make it. And, and we have, you know, Kamala or Gavin Newsom or someone somehow make it. But even there, I would imagine Gavin Newsom probably would be more establishment. So outside of a, a crazy progressive who makes it to the White House and changes the policy, you're either going to have Biden, who who seems to be pretty supportive of Israel's right to defend itself or you get someone who's even more aggressive, especially towards Iran. Well, just to finish the the Noah Smith point, 
or the, why I disagree with it. Many people, once they get richer, stop caring about uh, you know ethnic tribal conflict that's lasted a thousand years. Um, but many people, or, but there are certain you know, Bin Laden was rich; he was not poor. Like you know, some of these terrorists, they're they're not poor; they're actually quite wealthy, and they will use the money that they get to destroy you know the object that they're that they're targeting. And it, it's it's tough for people like Lex Fridman or I don't know people who are high IQ, people who are um, you know believe in peace and love and were educated in this. Um, to believe that there are people who've been brainwashed their whole lives to hate a certain group of people. Uh, and so uh, they want to extend sort of the liberal enlightenment, uh, you know, values to a global population where when that is not the norm. And and especially in, in, in this region, there's been so much violence for so long and so much brainwashing that, um, you know, simply making these people richer is not going to, to let them hate us. This is not just a one-off conflict. Uh, this is a yeah, I'd push back on that. Like, I think it's a dangerous, like, I understand where, like, the, the kind of argument, but I think it's a dangerous thing to just kind of, like, blanket a group of people and say, like, you know, like, everyone everyone is, you know, brainwashed by Hamas or whatever. No. Right. But but Noah, Noah was blanketing in the, in the other direction, right? Like, you need to make a generalization. Yeah. No, no. I, but so so here, here's how you split it. If you, if you systematically eradicate Hamas over whatever the next few months, year, multiple, you don't just have a new Hamas spring up. I, I, I think it, it will take time. Something will replace it at some point. And don't forget, there's also like Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is another organization that Iran, you have Hezbollah in Lebanon. Um, you have all the Iranian-backed militias in, in Syria. So it's it's not like Israel is getting rid of all of its, its kind of like existential enemies. But in terms of this specific enemy, Israel... I, I, it seems like is going to eradicate it. It will get rid of it completely. And what you will have is you will have a shell form of whatever it is in the same way though, that, and, and, and this is what I would flip to my other side of like arguing against myself is that's like saying, okay, we'll get rid of the cartels. So you, you get Chapo and you put him in jail and what do you actually get? You get more violence and you get even more uh, aggressive cartels because there's a modulating influence on having a strong, powerful, person that you can at least control. Yeah. So, so, so maybe, maybe that happens. I think it just gets hard because you get rid of all the infrastructure. You, you, you permanently get rid of the tunnels. Like you, you basically say, Hey, we're actually gonna, we're gonna occupy Gaza like permanently. And, and we're gonna, we're gonna go block by block and remove every weapon, every, like just get rid of everything. And it's going to have a huge cost on, on Israeli soldiers as well. But you get to a point where you you really lock it down and it just is so much harder than what it is today, which is obviously there's plenty of rockets and and although they're making rockets from the water pipes. So it's like people are like, oh, there's no water in Gaza. It's like, yeah, it's because Hamas uses the water pipes to make rockets. But they're going to they're going to remove all of those the the status quo tactics and, and you'll get new ones. People will still hate Israel and they will figure out ways to do stuff. But it, do we do we worry about Al Qaeda today? Despite the twenty years in Afghanistan and and the the failed war in Iraq and ISIS and all that kind of stuff, the reality is the kind of like you know radical Islamic terrorism is not a major issue in the United States today, and 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 frankly has not. We've had a couple of small incidents, but the we've systematically destroyed the existing infrastructure, and then we created it with ISIS. But I think have since been able to bring it way back. 
I, I don't think you ever get rid of it, right? Like it is, it is a simmering fire that will get new, new blood on it, and, and people will want to do it. But Let, let's address the Sachs position, right? Because Sachs is is being intellectually consistent here when he says, "Hey, um, you know, we shouldn't have gotten involved in Ukraine or involved to the extent that we did. We we, we made things worse. We you know risked potentially a, a global war." And he's saying the same thing here. He's saying, you know, escalation is unlikely to lead to to, to peace. Um, you know, and, and we shouldn't be facilitating or sort of encouraging a strong counter uh, because of the risk of getting global war. Feel free to add, add anything to this position, but why do you disagree? Yeah, so I think the one the one difference is that to one, the U.S. hasn't gotten involved yet, so he he's kind of preemptively saying, you know, like yeah, we put the battle battle group in the Eastern Mediterranean. I think that there was some stuff that we've kind of indicated to the Israelis we may shoot down a rocket from Hezbollah to just say, hey. Right. And so for those who don't know, Lebanon is a failed state run by a terrorist organization, Hezbollah, which is funded by the Iranians. And they have even more rockets than because it's like a real like an actual country. Right. Um, and again, not the Lebanese people, but the the fact that it's run by Hezbollah, um, I think also democratically elected. But they have even more weapons pointed at Israel. The I think the challenge there is they might be fat and happy in the sense that like, hey, maybe I don't, you know, I don't, because Gaza is this like little thing. It's like nine miles, 20 miles by nine, right? So it's 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 not very big. I mean, Lebanon is like a real size country. But um, I think where the US getting involved in that, that starts to actually be like, okay, I, I could actually start to be, have an argument, be like, let's support Israel if that's our position. But I don't think we should have any American boots on the ground for sure. But then you get into the, okay, if we have some drones that are basically shooting down rockets to just kind of indicate or stuff that we've been doing in Syria, it gets a little harder to say, like, is that a huge commitment? I think Sachs is very principled in the sense that he does not want any foreign wars. Um, and I generally am sympathetic to that. I actually think it's like the U.S. should just back out and let the rest of the world kind of deal with the the problems. And then the U.S. can be selective in who, who we are allies with. And we we should actually benefit from those those alliances versus a kind of like post World War II Bretton Woods. We basically run global security for everyone, and everyone else gets to benefit off that. Because I, I just don't see anyone challenging us in any way. I mean, like I think the China stuff is overblown personally, but but going back to that, Iran is different than than Russia. Russia has nuclear weapons. The Lindy factor here is they haven't used them. Okay, so they seem to have and, and, you know, say what you want about Putin, but he is a creature of the Cold War. And I think that the doctrine of mutually assured destruction, you can argue all you want, but it, it's held up. Right. And maybe this is a fall, uh, fallacious argument in the sense that, like, it, it, it holds up until it doesn't. But I think, like, if you assume rational actors on the other side, they won't use the nuclear weapons. I don't know if I could say the same thing about Iran. Um, given that their actual supreme leader is tweeting out the destruction of Israel is our goal. Um, and Israel specifically as a country, you drop a nuke in Tel Aviv or you, you, you know, smuggle a nuke into Tel Aviv and you, you have it go off. That would be such a devastating, just given how small the country is and how concentrated, or if you did it in Tel Aviv in Jerusalem, I mean, that, that is a, that is an existential threat to the state of Israel. And so to the degree that you believe that in Israel existing is good for the world, good for American politics or, you know, American foreign policy, 
than than actually making sure that Iran is contained, which is just so crazy that that Obama and then Biden have taken this kid glove approach to Iran of like, oh, yeah, we'll trust you that you're not going to go turn around and continue to try to enrich uranium. So so that that's where I would push back a little tax in the sense that. But put another way, if the Iranians get a bomb. Do you believe that they would actually be willing to use it? More so than most countries who, or all the other countries who have the bomb today. And I think you can go through the list, right? It's like U.S., France, uh, U.K., Israel has never disclosed it, but people assume that they have it. Russia, India, Pakistan, and then North Korea. And then South Korea and Japan uh, are like a wrench turn away. That's like the actual term. So it's like those are your people who have bombs. Uh, I think Brazil has had a program in the past. South Africa had a program. Egypt obviously had one. But Iran getting a bomb in in the Middle East would be a a major major problem in terms of both for Israel, but also then then the Saudis are going to want a bomb, right? Like, don't forget, like, you know, Iran and the Saudis uh, like hate each other. Shia Sunni, like, you know, this like like warming of relations that that obviously I think is. is is going out the door, even even though the Abraham Accords are not going to work out. Right well, now. yeah, to, to that point, I mean, it, yeah, worth mentioning a bit how perhaps it seems like the goal what, uh, of this sort of attack that was perhaps funded by by Iran um, or supported by Iran was to um, dismantle uh, the Saudi-Israel um, alliance, which it looks like it has, at least short term. What if Israel said, hey, we don't just want to eliminate Hamas. We want to eliminate the uh, sort of chance of Iran continuing to cause damage in the region or, or, or put Israel's security at risk. What, what would that, the most more aggressive move look like? Does ending Hamas really prevent Iran from funding some other group from, you know, the other groups that, that are sworn to eliminate Israel? Like what is sort of, if you're Israel right now and you're trying to guarantee sort of security for the, for the future, what's your move here? Well, I mean, obviously, getting rid of Hamas. So, so Israel's got multiple borders that that have extremely hostile people on it, right? So you have Hamas in the south, which just perpetrated, funded by Iran. So they're going to get rid of Hamas. So then you don't have any issue on the south, right? Because the rest of the south is the Sinai Desert and and uh, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, kind of right there. Okay, so Jordan is a kind of peaceful relative to Israel, U.S. and, and Egypt, the same in terms of like the, the U.S. has kind of locked down those alliances. In the north, you have Lebanon, Hezbollah, and then uh, Syria with the Golan Heights. OK, Syria is a failed state. Um, you know, you have roving militias and, and all these other kind of things. I don't think that is the bigger issue right now, especially also just from a geographic standpoint, like Israel is on the top of mountains looking into Syria. Like it is very difficult for the anything that bad to happen to Syria. However, Lebanon, like there was a Lebanon war, uh, what a decade plus ago, and and uh, with Israel, and and again, way more rockets. Hezbollah is a lot more sophisticated than Hamas, so I think that that is the next problem for Israel to think about. But in a world where they don't have Hamas in their south, then you don't have to have as much resources pointed there, right? Like you will have some, but then the focus can kind of be on the north. If Israel was to take action against Iran, then you're going to have Hezbollah and stuff in Syria both tried. So now you're going to be fighting like not even the, just the three fronts directly on your country, but uh, having anything else that Iran is trying to do, you know, 
Jews all over the world are going to be targeted. Like it, 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 that's a big, big step for them. But one interesting thing is, uh, again, going back to history, uh, the Israelis bombed Saddam Hussein's nuclear reactor. So it's, I think it's like early eighties. They just, they did a mission and they just blew up the reactor. Uh, you can just like type like Israel, Iraq, nuclear reactor. And, and so they have precedent and having done this, BB, you know, last few years was saying that they were going to kind of take action. And obviously there's been tons of uh, assassinations that have happened in the Iranian nuclear program, like very ripped out of a movie, like in terms of like motorcycle, you know, the guy's driving to work. He's the kind of chief nuclear scientist and and uh, some motorcycle, uh, two people on a motorcycle and it's like with an Uzi and they just chewed up the car. There was a like a really crazy one where it was like a car that had like a like a mechanical turret that like blew up a, a guy. And so they've been systematically removing a lot of the 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 like talent in terms of like the ability to make progress on the bomb. But yeah, I mean, if anything, this may now say to Israel, it's like, OK, we have to like we can't play within this globalist like secular. Oh, we're going to work as kind of like getting to a place of. Uh, peace with these different groups is this is existential. And if this is what Hamas with the least amount of capabilities is willing to do, like we we may need to actually solve Hezbollah permanently, solve Sir- Syria permanently. And that's not putting occupation in those countries as much as um, s- systematically removing their ability to do things and then actually try to do the same in Iran. Um, but this is actually where I think it's important for Israel. And I think that they appreciate that is th- having the U.S.'s support keeps Iran from getting too meddled, especially overtly, right? Like, I think that they're going to always be doing stuff um, covertly and, and you know, through proxies. But if the U.S. is willing to say, hey, no one else messing this, this is Israel's operation in, in Gaza, and we have a carrier battle group here or, or a couple, and we're saying this is, this is how it's going to go, I don't think you get um, anything too crazy from the Iranians. And then I actually here here's my thing. I don't I don't actually believe that the Saudis are totally off the board in the sense that I, I think MBS. You know, there's, there's a lot you can say about MBS, but I think MBS is is a modern ruler for Saudi Arabia relative to what Saudi Arabia has been led by in the past. Yes, his his father is kind of old, senile um, and, and from the hardline old camp of like, you know, pan-Arabism and and like, you know, pro-Palestinian. But I think MBS looks at this situation and goes, I want a closer relationship with Israel because I actually believe Israel is not an existential threat. The Palestinians are more of an annoyance to me if I think about, I'd rather have a strong relationship with Israel against Iran. Maybe it's on on ice for a few years, but like Israel didn't do anything against uh, the Arabs. It, it, It is a more of a political situation where they have to kind of say, hey, look, we we don't support any violence against Arabs. But the reality is, is 1,300 dead Israeli civilians is a terrible atrocity. And and I think I, I wouldn't be surprised if Israel continues to make progress, especially if you get a, a second Trump administration, um, which I don't think people appreciate how much uh, those those chances are increasing all the time. And I think maybe to close, like there's a very popular tech podcast. All in. Uh, <laughs> There were three endorsements of the Trump administration. I was amazed at how much the culture has shifted. Yeah. From people who've been accused and, and 
probably have TDS. Not had some. So I, I think like if, if that if that's a bellwether, like like I I think you are going to find people more and more in a world where Russia, Ukraine, Iran met, meddling with Israel and 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 stuff like that, China, and you're gonna be surprised that he's gonna be doing as well in the polling going into the election and probably still a coin flip. Like there are a lot of people who don't like him. But, you know, the border, I, I, I think if, if you have people starting to look at Trump and say, oh, you know, ignore the messenger, but look at the message, that's a shift in the Overton window. And, and I think people should just be mentally prepared that you're going to start to hear a lot more of that. And I think now is an interesting thing of like this, this split in the, the kind of like Democratic Party of people who are pro-Israel and people who are pro-Palestine. Those pro-Israel Democrats, if they don't like the direction that the, you know, whether the Biden is talking on the, on the campaign trail or you get a more progressive president, uh, presidential candidate somehow, they could be voting in the privacy of the voting booth for Trump. So I listened to a few hours of a Jared Kushner on Lex Friedman's podcast talking about this, the situation. And I never heard Jared speak before. And only the words that I'd associated with Jared were the words that I heard from the media, the sort of emotional loading. And what did I hear? I heard he was corrupt. I heard he was naive, didn't know anything about what was going on, just there because of nepotism, you know, not a great person. These are kind of the emotional loading that the media, you know, the listeners here probably have or had of Jared Kushner. But you listen to him for three hours, four hours, and he's actually incredibly thoughtful and, and incredibly smart. And it, it kind of changed my my perception of him. And it's a little bit of gel man amnesia, like like what else were they, you know, sort of exaggerating or making not seem true. He actually has an excellent grasp. Of, uh, of of what's happening in the region, and and it sounds like it did really great work uh, to to move things forward. And you know, it isn't you, we can't run the counterfactual of you know would this have happened if Trump was still president? But um, yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see. I, I I would even admit I like had this opinion. I think largely because of how the mainstream media had covered, but like I hadn't actually done any work to update my priors. And so one, I just had the assumption that he got into to Harvard because his dad is like pretty famous, like donated a bunch of money whose dad went to federal prison from Chris Christie. So there's like some history there. And one of the reasons I think Christie didn't, you know, he ran the transition, but then Kushner kind of knifed him in the back as like a, you know, an F you, you know, from my dad, I have a long memory. I think I said, the second thing I, I was like, okay, so nepotistic way of getting into Harvard, you know, he, he had owned the like whatever, the New York Observer, kind of like this like socialite in New York, obviously, you know, ran in the same circles as Trump type thing. Um, and then obviously, when you hear like, oh, your son-in-law is now a senior advisor. In a, in a, in a PMC driven, we only pick the best people merit like based people. I, I kind of and, and actually, to be fair, I think a part of this was also colored by Hillary Clinton was actually the first nepotistic uh, presidential thing. And for people who don't know, Hillary Clinton was in charge of the health care plan, right? It was Hillary care. And that was actually part of the the like basis of, of like people starting to really hate her on the right. And um, but but the fact that she was running an important initiative within the Clinton White House and people felt like she hadn't been elected. So the right was the first one to really go after someone like that. And then I think the left, obviously, with with Kushner. And so I think I was just kind of in my mind, I'm like, OK, it's, this, you know, Vanka's husband and Trump is Trump. And so I think listening to that 
podcast, you realize that there is a level of competence that I was unaware of. And, and so I, I, I feel ashamed that I, I hadn't done any work there prior. And the thing I would challenge anyone is just listen to the podcast and ignore that his name is Jared Kushner and he worked for Donald Trump. Like, you know, just imagine you were swapping that in for Obama. And it just like the, the same set of things that he's saying um, and the, the policies and, and strategy to try to normalize relations between two groups that basically for 75 years wouldn't talk to each other. I, I, I think, yeah, it, it's just like a good, it's a humbling experience if you come in with preconceived notions. And then to your point, it's like, what, what other up prior should you be trying to update? Like, I, I, I think people should just be like preparing themselves. Like the Overton window is shifting on Trump in that now because biden is doing things that trump kind of had said you're going to get more centrist people who kind of are like yeah he's annoying but from a governance standpoint there was actually a lot of stuff that he was doing that was right and i think it's i think it's going to just drive people crazy because the 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 progressive left is going to go even harder against that and and actually it, it's, it's it's a purity test so it's going to even be more cancellations of people for trying to do that but Voting booth is private, so we will we will find out. Um, and and I think that these cases don't seem like they're going to have legs. I think he, if anything, it's just going to add uh, more to his like martyr status. So I, I I think people should be prepared that he is he is ascendant right now. Whether or not that's enough to win the election, uh, you know, you won't know until the day of or the day, you know, a couple weeks before if if it feels like it's tracking. But like. The, none of the other Republicans, I mean, we, we've talked about this in the past, like, how, how's that uh, Vivek prediction working out, right? It's like Nikki Haley is the new one. I, I think it's like it's Trump-Biden, unless Biden or Trump doesn't make it. And it'd be interesting to see how long we wrap, just how long the Israel situation lasts. Is this something that Israel responds swiftly and then it's done? Or is this something that six months from now, you know, we're still... You, you know this stuff. It's like it, nothing is a short war, right? It's like World War One was supposed to be a short war. Like everything's supposed to be a short war and it, it just drags on. Whether it's 20 years in Afghanistan, I don't, I don't I mean, obviously you could argue that like the entire Palestinian question is a 70 year occupation if you want to use it from that uh, frame. But the other interesting thing is just like these wars are playing out on social media and like literally both sides are knowing that that is actually the way to push their message. And so there's just a lot of information flying around. Obviously now that with AI and just even just being able to reuse old footage and then just kind of put something in a viral tweet, like I hate the term misinformation because it just like it assumes that there is a right version of the truth. And it's like anyone who kind of like has any sense for history is like, of course there's always multiple sides of things. But, and everyone's talked about this, like, the fact that Elon is running X means that there is not going to be some uh, truth commission in San Francisco who probably would be more sympathetic to the Palestinian side of things that is like putting its finger on the scales as to what gets amplified versus not. I think you you really, to, to use the arena term, it's just like pure arena. Like it is just like, what is the algo going to reward? And I think that is... Uh, that is an important part of of this kind of like modern warfare, right? It's like winning the hearts and minds or or keeping it relevant with people in the US who who obviously are going to impact the presidential election, which will impact, you know, Israel's. Well, well, it's possible that some of those people 
in, in, in that group or in that circle would be Jewish. So it's possible they support Israel. But either way, I, I do appreciate, as you mentioned, not putting the thumb on the thumb on the scale. I, I want to wrap with just a couple sort of points or disclaimers. Obviously, we're sort of amateur analysts or you know historians. Wait, let me let me just push on that though. I, I think like if you if you're listening to this podcast and like what you want is experts, like I'm, I'm promising you, most experts are full of shit or they have an agenda. And so it's like we're, what we're trying to do is just reason about information that's coming into us and and share our takes. And this is this is an entertainment podcast. This is not meant to be any any official take. It's just like two people's thoughts and, and trying to consume the information the same way that you are. I, I would be interested in talking to someone who disagrees with us a bit more. You know, we we're, we're, we tend to be more uh, on the Israel side of the argument in terms of perspective. But I would love to have Amjad or someone like Amjad intellectual caliber who has a slightly different position. He would never do it because, it, you know, there's too much. Um, it's too controversial of a topic and he's CEO of Replit and needs to focus on that. But someone truly brilliant, first principles thinker who's who's got some different perspectives, I, I, I welcome that on, the, on this show. I'm just going to say, I, probably me, I'm not going to want to have that conversation. In, and it's not shying away from it. It's just, I, I actually don't think there's a ton of upside. Uh, and and maybe maybe the listeners would be like, yeah, we, we should do that. But I, I think what that conversation is going to be is a bunch of citations and examples that will be like this is this is why this has been bad and this is contextualizing it and i will agree with those examples assuming i can go verify on wikipedia but then i'm going to come from the place of okay so what do you what what do you actually want done the reality is power is the thing that matters there is no referee the un can't just like be like up oh, here's the ruling okay like everyone gets their side and and no it's just like israel is in control and that that's where we are. And so the best thing that we can do is get to a place where, you know, Israel is willing to kind of like work with whatever group. And so that, that that's, I would be open to it in the sense that I would allow like another person to be able to voice like, hey, here's a different point of view. And, and so maybe that's valuable in its own right. But I, I don't think it would be as much of a discussion because I think it it's just like you're coming from a place of like, I think that this is right. And the right doesn't matter like what matters is can it actually happen right this is the same thing with healthcare in the united states it's it's just like who cares about like who is right it's 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 actually it's like tactics like how does this mechanically change and so that 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 would be my only push and so if we want to have that conversation i'm i'm fine to have that person come on but i i'm i'm skeptical that we would actually make any progress outside of just a bunch of people citing stats that you'd have to go look up on wikipedia to say okay yeah there have been some, uh, you know, dead people on one side and dead people on the other side. I think this is going to be the biggest sort of culture war in some time because it's so complicated, because there are strong people on both sides. And I hope I hope people don't lose too many friends over it or too many jobs or, uh, you know, I, I guess I do take the hot take that that all lives matter. That this is a, an absolute tragedy that you can condemn violence on one hand. And I, yeah, I do think Israel should guarantee its its security, but I also... I, I, you know, despair at the the lives that are going to be lost. I hope you know c civilians are minimized as much as possible. I hope these other countries open up their um, sort of you know immigration policy to take people in if if that's what's needed. And um, I, I think it's okay to to want both of those things. And I think it was okay. Let me respond one that last one. I actually don't think most people are going to lose lose friends from it. So, some, of course. I don't think the PMC is pro Hamas. It is. 
just enough both sidesism. It's it's the Bar- go look at Barack Obama's tweet. That is the position that the average PMCer, who I think that the reality is that's probably a lot of who listens to this podcast. And so that's all you have to kind of do, and then you can kind of move on. You will have the 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 radical progressives who are doubling down on you know pro Hamas or the the kind of like Palestinian cause is the only just cause. But I actually like if the BLM Chicago thing is any indication, I think that the response there is going to be quick to be like, okay, you know what, this is we're gonna we're gonna just avoid this one because this is going to hurt our long term ability to attract over. The, the kind of like good liberal. I, I, I basically am saying I disagree. I do not think that this will be as big of a culture war issue, primarily because of the, the scale of the atrocity that had- But wait until Israel counters, right? But they're not going to do anything. I mean, they could, but I, I, I highly doubt they are going to do anything at the scale and shock uh, uh, impact. Th- there probably will be some terrible thing, like a a bomb goes off and it, uh, you know, in the wrong target and it kills a bunch of uh, kids in a in a shelter and it'll be a super big tragedy, right? But there is no version of indiscriminate killing of 260, like slaughtering people at a music festival or or burning babies or like you know for for like deliberate purposes, right? So so I think most reasonable people are going to be able to separate like it's tragedy, yes period. But the tragedy that comes as a result of war versus the tragedy that comes as a result of a terrorist attack. And I, and I actually, maybe I'm too optimistic, but I really think that the center establishment of the Democratic Party is very much in the pro-Israel camp, even if they have to kind of do that lightweight both sidesism. But when Barack Obama and Biden are basically in the pro-Israel camp, I, I think it's very hard for the progressives to kind of like really seize the issue. And and here's the thing. If we had a Republican president right now, I actually think you may may see more people tack to the the progressive side just as a reflexive like oh this is like a good wedge issue. But the reality is the person who's supporting the Israelis is Biden. So so if anything like if that disillusions some people to want to vote for Biden or or like support Biden and I don't believe this because I actually think people hate Trump so much that if it's Trump versus Biden, they're going to vote for Biden no matter what. But any loss of enthusiasm for Biden is a benefit to Trump or, or the Republican. Let's uh, we'll, we will find out. Let, let, let's wrap on that. Uh, this, this is a great one, Dan, to be continued. Turpentine is a network of podcasts, newsletters and more covering tech, business and culture, all from the perspective of industry insiders and experts. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from AI with Cognitive Revolution to Econ 102 with Noah Smith. Our other shows drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, and investors, like Moment of Zen and my show Upstream. We're looking for industry-leading hosts and shows along with sponsors. If you think that might be you or your company, email me at eric at turpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co. Hey, it's Eric. There's no shortage of tech and business podcasts, but few actually give you a true and regular dose of the future. The A16Z podcast is the exception. It's a lighthouse for founders, breaking down the most important trends in technology and business. Struggling to keep up with the pace of change in AI? They just spoke to top builders from OpenAI, Anthropic, Roblox, and more. 
wondering what on earth is happening up in space. They just dropped a series on the satellite economy or questioning whether recent salary transparency legislation will cause clarity or chaos. They just broke down how companies can not only survive, but thrive in this new environment. Host Steph Smith sits down with some of the world's most influential people, movers who have a track record of being both early and right, like Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, Nobel Prize winning astrophysicist John Mather, and A16Z co-founders Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. So go ahead, eavesdrop on the future by following the A16Z podcast on your favorite podcast app and tell them I sent you.